0: Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Did you make any New Year's resolutions this year? We are now three weeks into 2017, and I bet many of us have already reverted to our old ways. However, what I want to propose here is not a new habit or a trick to stop an old one. Rather, I want to encourage you to adopt a particular perspective, whether you gain weight or lose it, whether you go to bed early or stay up late, whether you get consistent with flossing or not, everything you do can and should be done to the glory of God. What's more, living with this perspective doesn't mean you have to give up on pleasure and become some sort of ascetic monk living out in the desert. In fact, just the opposite is true. When we live for God's glory, we can enjoy our lives more than ever before. Here now is podcast episode 67, Soli Deo Gloria. New Year's is such a great time to take stock of your life, isn't it? Think through how you want to live in 2017 and think about the different habits that you want to stop or start in 2017 a lot of people say they want to improve their health their fitness they want to lose weight they want to spend more time with family and friends maybe they want to get organized maybe they want to spend less money and save more christians you know we we want to pray more right we want to read our bibles more i saw a Gail, I think it was Gail, said she wanted to read through the chronological Bible. Where's Gail? She's right here somewhere. Was that you? Yeah, chronological Bible in a year, right? And uh, that's a very, very good thing to do, and I recommend it, to read through the Bible in a year, whether chronologically or not, <laughs> whichever way. And uh, anyhow, I, was, I came across this, this old document from Jonathan Edwards from the 1720s, and he wrote down some resolutions, and I thought they were pretty impressive. This is what he said. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. That's a good starting line for a New Year's resolution, right? Realize that I can't do anything without God's help. I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. Then he says, remember to read over these resolutions once a week. That's an interesting idea, huh? And then he, so this is number one for Jonathan Edwards, the old New England preacher. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never, so many myriads of ages hence. <laughs> uh, and Then I put also number four here. You can read the other however many pages of this there are. <laughs> but number four is resolve never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God, nor be, nor suffer it if I can avoid it. So what I, what I found interesting here about this declaration of Jonathan Edwards is, uh, let see if this thing works here, good. Uh, the part where he says to God's own glory and then he also says, to my own good. And I find that fascinating. I find that fascinating because we think to ourselves, well, you've got God's glory over here, and if I pursue God's glory, then I'm going to be one of these really joyless, anti-pleasure people who never has any, any fun in life or does anything that is different than you know, praying on your knees, and then you have the people that are like pursuing their own good, and they're, and they're just let's face it, they're hedonists. I mean, they are just they're they're eating dessert before dinner. Though I mean, and, and then uh, so what Jonathan Edwards says is, I want to whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good. He wants to he wants to either I guess align his own desires and pleasures with things that glorify God, but he doesn't see those as too separate things. And there's this scripture that I think is so powerful. I mean, it's really talking about what kind of food you eat, whether you keep kosher or not, whether you eat vegetables or meat, depending on whether the meat had been sacrificed to idols earlier. That's the context of this chapter here. But the the theological point is, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And I, I think this, for us, needs to be at the heart of how we think about our own lives, that we think about ourselves as, how can this glorify God in my life? How can I do this to the glory of God? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a document from 1647, the first question says, what is the chief end of man? What's the purpose of my life? And the answer comes back, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I love that. I mean, that's not Bible. That's not authoritative, but that's, that's about hitting it on the head, right? The purpose of your life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I think there is a really powerful connection between glorifying God and enjoying God. And uh, we'll look at that in a moment here. But I want to look, look at Judges chapter 6 with you and, and talk to you about Gideon. Gideon... This is where, where I've been reading in the mornings, and it, it's an impressive story. If, if, I don't know if you've ever read Judges before. It's full of all kinds of dysfunction, but there is this cycle where the children of Israel are, are good with God, and then whoever the deliverer, the leader is, dies, and they fall into idolatry, and they forget about God, and so then God lifts his hand, and some some nation comes in and starts oppressing them and persecuting them. And so they're miserable. So they cry out to God, oh, God, please help us. And God sends a new judge to deliver the people, usually somebody that would prevail in battle. And, and so long as that judge is alive, the people are good with God and also enjoying peace in the land. And then they forget God and go into idolatry once the judge has died. And we have this cycle of dysfunction throughout the whole book of Judges. And so Gideon comes in, uh, look at chapter 6, verse 1, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And so the, the children of Israel, the people living in this area, were overrun by these Midianites. And this is really a difficult time for them, because the Midianites would show up in such vast numbers, and they would just pillage the land. Once the, once the land grew some crops, and then they would just take it all away and leave the Israelites completely destitute. And so the Israelites were hiding out in dens in the mountains and in caves and in strongholds. And the Midianites would come through like locusts, it says. And they would just wipe out all of the, all the crops. They would take all the oxen and the donkeys with them. And so Israel was just economically devastated. And can you imagine that? Just, just having some people group show up, let's say the Canadians, and they, they all just gather at the border, and they're like, all right, it's, it's um, the day before Christmas. These people's houses are going to be loaded with presents. Let's just sweep through, and we'll enter into every house and take all the presents away and, and bring them back to Canada. I know Canadians would never do that. It's too far-fetched, isn't it? But uh, I mean, that would be really crazy, wouldn't it? And so that's what was going on here. And they weren't just taking their presents. They were taking their food, right? And so Gideon is dealing with this situation. And it says uh, that he was beating out wheat in a, in a wine press. So that's not how you beat. What you do with a wine press is you, you press grapes, right, to, to make uh, the juice, which then becomes wine. You don't, you don't beat out your wheat in a wine press, you, usually you beat out your wheat in an open area so that the wind can take the chaff away and your wheat falls, and you kind of like lift it up with that uh, pitchfork looking thing, it's like a little bigger than a pitchfork, and, and, and you beat it and you, you get your grain from your wheat, and then you can use your, a mill uh, stone to turn that into flour, right? You don't do that in a wine press. Why, so Gideon is over here in a wine press, he's working on his wheat, and why is he doing it like that? To hide from the Midianites. These people are going to, if they see him making uh, or getting wheat together, they're just going to come and take it away. So he's hiding out in the winepress. Look at verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. What? I mean, here's this guy. He's like hiding in this winepress, working on his wheat. He's hoping he gets some bread eventually out of this whole process. And an angel pops out of nowhere and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said, verse 13, Please, sir, if the Lord, if Yahweh is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Hmm, good question, huh? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not Yahweh bring us up from Egypt? But now Yahweh has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And Yahweh turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? <laughs> so God's speaking through the angel here, and God's saying, "Like, look, I that, I know that. Obviously, God knows that. That's why He's sending you, Gideon. You're the solution to the problem. This is like when God came to Moses, right? Moses is like, but 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 I can't talk, right? And you have you have you have uh, an, an empire genociding a, a whole people group ethnic cleansing right that's what Egyptians were doing to the Israelites, and God picks some random fugitive way out of the country and says, all right, you're the solution. <laughs> Moses <is> like <laughs> wrong guy. Wrong guy. But God works with him, right? And then Moses becomes Moses, right? And we have the 10 plagues and the Red Sea and suddenly the founding of a nation. So Gideon, he, he's just a little confused right here. Verse 15, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. Hello. If God says I will be with you, you don't have a problem anymore. It's like uh, when you uh, play sports and you have like that one kid that's super tall, like especially like basketball, right? Like you might have a bunch of misfits on the team, but then like there's the one guy that that can just go like this and put it in, right? Like, oh, we got him, we'll be all right. We'll just give him the ball. So, I mean, but times a million, right? I mean, this is God we're talking about. God says, I will be with you. You will strike the Midianites as one man. Verse 17, and he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. So he goes, he makes some food, he brings it back, he pours it out on the rock, and the, the angel touches it with a stick, and it lights on fire. And then suddenly the angel disappears. And so that's uh, the the moment when Gideon starts to realize that he's been visited by by an angel of God and that God has spoken to him through this angel. And so then that night, God spoke to him in a dream. It's a crazy dream because God says to him, what I want you to do is I want you to tear down the altar to Baal, your family altar to this pagan god. I want you to tear it down. And that grove that they're growing next to it, the Asherah grove, I want you to cut that down, right? So now you're, you're asking Gideon to take a stand for Yahweh over against Baal and Asherah and, and, and to, I mean, you're messing with people's gods. It's, it's intense, you know what I mean? And so, that, so Gideon wakes up and he says, well, I don't want to do that in broad daylight because I don't want to get caught. So he waits until nighttime. He gets 10 people together, 10 uh, men that he knows that will presumably keep it quiet. And in the middle of the night, he goes and he finds this altar to to Baal, to Baal, that pagan god, and he he breaks it down. He breaks it down. And then he, he uses a bull to do it. You know, he's just pull this thing down. And then he cuts down the grove and he burns it. And then he sacrifices and he builds an altar to Yahweh. And he sacrifices that bull on the altar. And then he scurries back to his bed. The next morning, the the village is all confused. They're they're offended. They're upset. Is this the Midianites who did this? And somehow or other, it gets back that it was Gideon that did it. And so Gideon um, is not the head of his house. His father, Joash, is the head. So they go to Joash, his father, and they say, Bring out Gideon. We want to kill him. Look what he did to our gods. We're going to kill him. And his father, it's really an interesting thing he says to him. Verse 30 there, chapter 6, verse 30. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to those who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal or will you save him? You're going to save your God? You're going to fight for your God? Is that what you're doing here? What kind of God needs you to fight for them? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by mourning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. So, uh, the very first thing, this is interesting, God's trying to save a whole nation that's suffering oppression. The very first thing that he has his insider, his agent, his warrior do is first of all, let's get rid of the competition. We need to to take out these other gods because God is so offended by that. He is so offended by that. In fact, that's the very first thing when he brings his people out of Israel all those centuries before this, the very first thing he says to them at the mountain is, I am Yahweh your God. You shall have no other gods besides me. Look, other nations are going to have gods. They're going to, they're going to serve Asherah and El and Chemosh and whatever, Dagon, right? That's the other nations. This is God's people. This is Yahweh's people. If they want to be his people, they need to be faithful to him. And God takes that very seriously. So the very first thing he, he does with his, his ambassador, his agent, is he says, get rid of these other gods. Take them out. Now, let's get to work. So God wants the glory And we'll see that even clearer in just a moment. So he starts getting ready for battle. And uh, what happened is Midian started gathering at the border. And they crossed the border of the Jordan River. And they were gathering in the valley of Jezreel. And so the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And he blew the trumpet, the battle trumpet. And so a bunch of the men from his area, the Abiezrites, came out to follow him. We see in chapter 7, look at Judges 7, verse 2. It says... Yahweh said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. This verse is a key verse for what I'm trying to communicate this morning. God wants to have things straight in people's minds. He doesn't want people to think, that they win a battle, therefore, they're so great. He wants them to win a battle and say, isn't God great? That's what he wants them to do. And he's like, look, you just have too many people. Just too, I, I, there's no way that I'm going to be behind. We need to whittle it down. Look at verse 3. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, and this was part of the law of Moses, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. (laughs) So so what's our starting number then? 32,000, right? That's our starting number. And uh, God says to them, anyone who's afraid, Gideon, tell the people, anyone who's afraid, just go home. All right, now, why would they be afraid? Let me, let me let you in on another number. This is from chapter 8, verse 6. You, they're going up against a number of 135,000. So you have 32,000 scrappy Israelites with probably not even good weapons. And then you've got 135,000 Midianites. Like I said, grasshoppers, locusts, just covering the valley. This is how many people we're dealing with here. And, I mean, what, what, are, what are the odds what are the odds there for that? Right? So then they lost 22,000, which is a net loss of 69% of your forces like that. So you're down almost 70%. So now you've got 30% of what you had before. And what you had before was like every one of these guys has got to kill like five Midianites to like make a dent. Right? And uh, so, but then... Look at what it says in the next verse. Then twenty-two thousand people left, ten thousand remained. Verse four, and you always said to Gideon, the people are still too many. It's too many. Okay, take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and Yahweh said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, the, uh, the, the, the less mannered of the group, I would say, uh, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. Let's just run the numbers real quick, okay? You have 32,000 going against 135,000. I mean, Jesus himself said, count the cost. If you are going against an army that is bigger, you sue for terms of peace so that you don't just get annihilated, right? I mean, that's common sense in, in, in the ancient world and in the modern world you don't, you don't deal with those odds. But hey, God said he's with these people. This is the great God of the the plagues of Egypt. This is the great God of the Red Sea. This is the great God who won Jericho those centuries before. So like, okay, all right, down to 22 or down to uh, 10,000. And then they went from 10,000 and they lost 9,700 of them to get to 300 people. Now That's a loss of 97% of the people that they had left, which if you compare 300 people to 135,000 people, that's less than 1%. That's, in fact, it's 0.2% if you want the exact ratio. 0.2%. I mean, what you want is to have as many or more than the other guy, right? You're at 0.2%. This isn't even an army anymore. This is just like a battalion. This is just a group of guys, right? right? They're not... What are we talking about here? What, why is God doing all this? Once again, look at verse 2. Yahweh said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying... My own hand has saved me. God wants it to be clear that he has saved them. He wants it to be clear that he was the one behind it. And only if we're at something crazy like 0.2%, when you really want to be at 100, maybe 110%, can he be sure that his people won't rob him of his glory. You know, something, that says something about the human condition. Not just about old, or ancient people, but about us, too. If we, if, we, if we can, if we're not vigilant, if we're not aware of it, we will take the glory. That's what we do. Think about, uh, I mean, we're adults, so it's a little different. But like a kid, you look at a kid, they're always saying, Mommy, look what I just did. Daddy, look what I just did. Look at this. I just drew a picture. Right? I mean, they're always looking for their own glory. That's how, that's how we are from, from the start. Yeah, it's the human nature. Right. And so God's like, I know you people, even if it's even if it's 10,000 to 135,000, there's a chance that you will think you're so great. Let's get it down. So there's no question to 300. So that's what he's doing here. So Gideon divided the 300 into three companies and each had here. Here's what they have. An empty jar, a torch and a trumpet. Don't you love that? I mean, that is so cool. And of course, those of you who know the story know how this all works out, but like pretend for a moment you didn't know how it worked out. All right, guys, just imagine the rah-rah speech right before, like, all right, guys, we sent all the sissies home. There's 300 of you here. Look to your left, look to your right. Chances are both of those people are gonna die, but you may make it if you do exactly what I say, right? And Gideon's pumping him up and he's like, all right, Here's what we got. All those people left, but we got some good stuff. We have clay pitchers for each of you. <laughs> we have a torch, 300 torches, so you, so you can see. And um, we happen to have a lot of trumpets. So everybody gets a shofar. Hand them out, boys. All right, and the guys are just like, um... Yeah. What about the spears? Where are the bow and arrows? Who's going to be an archer, Gideon? We have, we have a couple of archers. We've got some left-handed Danites over here that could sling a stone probably. And uh, Gideon's just like, no, we're just going to stick with the jar, the, the torch, and the trumpet for now. Okay? This is what God wants us to do. That's faith, right? I mean, yeah. that's not faith. I don't know what is. So they, Gideon says, wait for my signal. When you hear my signal, blow your trumpet and break your pitcher and shout don't forget to shout. That's important, guys. And so that's what they do. They break the jars, they hold up the torches, they're they're, uh, surrounding the camp, and they shout a sword for Yahweh and for Gideon. And then they just stood there. That was the the whole plan, right? But they did it in the middle of the night, and you've got 135,000 people down there. You don't have modern electricity. I'm sure there are some campfires and maybe a couple of torches around, but it's hard to see. And the Midianites are convinced they're being attacked. And in that moment, they start killing each other. They think, oh, this is one of those people that are, we hear all this picture, uh, the sound of breaking clay, and we see all these torches surrounding us. We hear these trumpets. Each one of those trumpet must have a whole army behind it, 300 trumpets. I mean, what are we talking about here, people? And then they run out of their tents and they, and they start Fighting each other. They start fighting each other. And in that moment, they go from 135,000 in that one evening down to 15,000. And, I mean, those are some crazy odds, right? 135,000 down to only 15,000. 120,000 people killed each other. They're still standing up there with their torch. They're like, This is a good strategy. This works, right? And so then uh, Gideon rallies Israel, and they pursued those 15,000, and they defeated that 15,000. And after the dust settled, we read in chapter 8, look at 8, verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Oh, Gideon, rule over us. Gideon, you are the one. You saved us rule over us, and you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over, you knuckleheads, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. Yahweh, the Lord, will rule over you. Gideon had this straight, right? Gideon realized that the whole point of God whittling down the army was so that he would get glory, so that he would get glory the recognition as being the one qualified to rule. Gideon and I, I didn't go into all the details, but Gideon was not a model believer. When the angel came to him, he complained about how God was running things. A little while after that, he did he did the deed, but he did it at night in secret, right? And then a little while after that, he still wouldn't move until he put out a fleece and he said, "All right, God, if it's wet on the fleece and dry on the ground, then I'll know you've spoken to me." So God makes it wet on the fleece and dry on the ground. And then the next, the next morning, what does Gideon do? He does the whole thing again, right? He says, well, if it's dry on the fleece and wet on the ground, then I'll know for sure, or vice versa, whichever way it went. And, and then he still wasn't ready. He still wasn't ready. God had to give a dream to one of the Midianites. In the tent. And he brought Gideon down to the camp at night. And Gideon is, is next to, with a, a servant of his. And they're listening in on the outside of one of these tents. And one of the Midianites says, I had this dream. And it was, it was this tumbleweed that came down and it destroyed our camp. And the, and the other one says, oh, that must be Gideon. God is sending him to defeat us. And then Gideon, so he, is my. there's nothing about Gideon here. It's all God. And then a person who's willing to say, okay, okay, I believe, I will go, right? But it's, it's not Gideon's glory, it's God's glory. And I feel like that really illustrates for us something that's so important. Ken Sandy said, what are you really living for? It's crucial to realize that you either glorify God or you glorify something or someone else. You're always making something look big. If you don't glorify God when you're involved in a conflict, you inevitably show that someone or something else rules your heart. What are you living for? Are you living for God? Is your life about God's glory? Soli Deo Gloria is the Latin phrase that means glory to God alone. The idea is that even the talents that God gives us are given to us to express for his glory. right? And this is, this is really important. And it's easy to, it's easy to get this confused. I want to show you a video. Okay, so this is my son Noah. Yesterday we went to a hill and uh, he has a snowboard sled there and he's coming all the way down and uh, it's not a proper snowboard so it's a little more difficult. And he gets to the end, oh, and he puts his hands up. Hey! And uh, when I saw that, you know what I, you know what I did, and I, I realize you don't have sound on this, but what, what I did is I shouted I shouted because I was so impressed with my son's balance that he could make it all the way down. Because I actually had tried this before him. And I, I have good balance. I mean, it's not like great, but it's, it's decent. You know, it's, it's adult balance versus kid balance, right? And, uh, I, and I, I could not make it down. I went, I went down twice and um, fell both times, numerous times. And uh, he, just, he just cruised right down it, no problem, look at that, right down to the bottom. Did you love that little flare at the end? The question you have to ask yourself is, what gets you going? What gets you excited? And you know what? My, my son Noah, my other sons, my wife, you know, my family, I'm sure you feel this way too. They get you excited. They, your, your family, you know, you, you care about them right? I'm sure Craig, when he saw Mark up here, he got excited about that. I would, if I saw my son up here doing something godly and and speaking in that manner. You know, you get excited about your your kids, right, Valerie? Yeah, you you get excited about them when they do stuff. And you know what, that's proper, and that's right, and that's good, but not if it becomes your God, not if it becomes what you're living for. If you live for your kids, you will crush them. They, they're not God. They can't bear the weight of that burden of being the one you live for. Only God can bear that weight of what you're living for. And you can have a thousand passions, but if God is not your chief good, your chief joy, your chief boast, then you're an idolater. Let's face it. If God is not first, if God is not the one in whose shadow you do everything else, then you're really just an idolater. It's just you, you've traded an Asherah for a Facebook account, or you've traded an altar of Baal for your kids, or your job, or whatever it is that you find satisfaction and joy in as the purpose and goal and end of your life. Now, you can, like I said, you can have passions. I think God made us to have passions, but we have to have them in a right relationship with our passion for God. He has to be first. This is uh, another way somebody said it, John Calvin. The whole world is a theater for the display of the divine goodness, wisdom, justice, and power. But the church is the orchestra, as it were, the most conspicuous part of it. And so the whole world bespeaks the glory and majesty and splendor and wisdom and justice of God, right? But it's the church that's supposed to be playing the tune. that are supposed to be drawing people's attention to how great our God is. This is uh, from John Piper. He, he has this concept called Christian hedonism. If you've ever listened to John Piper, you've, you've probably come across this. But it's, it's one of the most fascinating and helpful ways of thinking about God's glory that I know. And what he says is that Christian hedonism says God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Did you catch that? God is most glorified in you. So you, you can show God's glory the best when you find Him satisfying, right? When, when, when you go through some situation in your life and through it all, especially through a time of suffering, you say, God is enough. When you go through something and you say, this is really hard, but God will get me through it. He's my chief good. That makes him look glorious. And when good times happen, and you say, thank God for his, his blessings on my life, rather than say, I am so good at my job. Do you see they gave me a raise, right? But, but if instead you say, thank God for his provision on my life, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing that happens, we are to live to the glory of God. He, he goes on, that's the shortest summary of what we mean by Christian hedonism. Hedonism is pursuing pleasure. If that is true, then there's no conflict between your greatest exhilaration and God's greatest glorification. In fact, not only is there no conflict between your happiness and God's glory, this is the same thing Jonathan Edwards said, but his glory shines in your happiness. When your happiness is in him, and since God is the source of greatest happiness, and since he is the greatest treasure in the world, and since his glory is the most satisfying gift he could possibly give us, Therefore, it is the kindest, most loving thing he could possibly do to reveal himself and magnify himself and vindicate himself for our everlasting enjoyment. See, people say, oh, God's a a megalomaniac. He's always saying, oh, praise me, praise me, lift me up, glorify me. They say, oh, well, God just, he's just lifting himself up, right? Well, here's the simple fact. The simple fact is God made us to experience joy and pleasure in giving him praise, and giving Him glory, that the way He designed us is to be in relation with Him, and when we have that, when we are, when we are, when we are lifting Him up, we experience joy. And so he's not, he's not an egomaniac. He loves you, and He knows how He made you. And so the idea is that whether it's overt praise, like when we sing together as a congregation, or whether it's me watching my kid go down a hill that's barely covered with snow, and it's got like those upside down candy cane vents from the uh, old dump that it's actually built on, um, I could say not, Noah is the greatest good. Look at how spectacular my boy is. But instead, look at how, look at how awesome God is to make this boy. Look at how awesome God is to design a body that can balance like that. Look at how awesome God is to make a hill and design gravity and laws of physics so that this sort of shenanigans is possible. How great is God to design snow and to have it cover the grass and the grass to come back the next year. I mean, if you, if it's just a minor shift in how we think about things, whatever it is, whether it's doing the dishes or watching your kid do something. It can all be done. I'm convinced to the glory of God if we just have that mindset, and then then we can help each other, right? I love Chuck Camella's standard greeting when somebody asks him, "How are you doing?" And I heard it a thousand times when I I used to work for Chuck as a teenager. He had me uh, doing all kinds of jobs down in Albany, and he people would come up to him, "Well, how are you doing? How are you doing today, Chuck? How's it going?" Always the same response. Good, thank God. Every day that he would be able to say the answer good to how his life, it was thank God. And it was just like a reflex for him. I don't even know where he picked that up. But, like, that's another small example where with our words, with how we, I mean, you're still answering the question. I'm not asking that we become weirdo monks where, like, every single word we say is a scripture from somewhere. Okay, that's... That's, that's something else. What I'm saying is that whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God. And I think, that's, and I think if we do that, we will find the joy we, we desire. We will find the pleasure. We will find the happiness. And we will look back on our lives and our year and we'll say, yeah, there's some good times and some bad times, but I did it to the glory of God. Hallelujah. Because in the end, that's what's really going to matter, especially when Jesus comes back. God is the one being for whom self-exaltation is the most loving act because he is exalting for us what alone can satisfy us fully and forever. If we exalt ourselves, we are not loving because we distract people from the one person who can make them happy forever, God. But if God exalts himself, he draws attention to the one person who can make us happy forever, himself. He is not an egomaniac. He is an infinitely glorious all-satisfying God, offering us everlasting and supreme joy in himself. That's a perspective that I want to have in 2017. What about you? I want to have the kind of perspective that says God is all-satisfying, God is all-glorious, God is all-majestic and worthwhile, and then live in such a way that shows that to other people. Look, you do this anyhow with anything you're excited about, anything you're passionate about. Something, you know, uh, so you have a victory in the retail universe where you got ripped off and then you finally made it right, right? Aren't you telling people about that story? Of course you are. I am too. Anytime something good happens after waiting for an hour on the phone on hold, dealing with people in another country, and I actually get the resolution I seek, I'm excited about that. I'm ready ready to tell everybody, right? And, and, And that's fine. But do it to the glory of God. Tell people to the glory of God. Thank God that this was able to happen or that I was able to have the patience and not destroy my phone and then have to buy a new phone because I was so annoyed with this company. Right. And, and you know, the idea of praising God in everything we do. What we uh, please go to first Peter, chapter four. I just want to wind things down here. What we do, and I, I speak for myself, is is we rob God. We start to think to ourselves, wow. It's like Nebuchadnezzar. Look at this great city that I have built with my own strength. Do you know what happened to him after he said that? He lost it. He lost it for seven seasons, whatever that was. whether it seven months, a year and a half, or seven years? I don't know, but he lost it. He lost his mind until his hair grew like the feathers of a bird. And his, and his fingernails were like the claws. Right. He was out of his mind. And then when God restored his mind, his sanity to him, Nebuchadnezzar was singing a different song. He wasn't singing, look at this glorious Babylon that I have built. He was saying, praise God who lifts men up and brings them down. That's what Nebuchadnezzar was saying. Right. And so we, we don't want to rob God. Do you want to rob God? So much of what success each one of us has had in our own lives, whether we talk about relationships or finances or our jobs or other things that we've achieved, music, art, these sorts of successes that we've had, we, want, we have to be careful not to say, I am so great, but to, or, but to say, thank God for this talent. Right? Because whatever good we do, it's, it's contingent. You didn't choose the place of your birth. You didn't choose your parents' You didn't choose whatever opportunity afforded you the chance to develop your gifts. If you were born out in outer Mongolia during the reign of Genghis Khan, how would it have been in that case, right? It would be a little different. And so I think we need to praise God in the good times and in the bad times. Instead of glorifying our our children, we need to thank God for giving us children and I think we can recognize God in public. I think we need to have a little more courage in 2017. I don't know, I'll just speak for myself here. I, I want to be a little more courageous. I, w- I want to be a little bit more like Chuck Camella here, where somebody asked me just a silly question, and, I, and I'm bringing glory to God. You know, because even if that person doesn't turn, even if that person never believes, God still deserves glory. And if I can just give him a little bit more, that, that is a good thing. That's satisfying. That's, that's worth the social awkwardness of that encounter to me. I mean, it, it's always, it's awkward anyhow. I'm not good at meeting new people. So why not just give God, <laughs> my wife's laughing. <laughs> why not just give God glory in that situation anyhow? First Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. You have a gift, use it to serve other people. As good stewards of God's varied grace. Do you see that verse? Whatever your talent is, use it to serve others as a steward of God's varied grace. It's God's grace that accounts for your giftedness. And so it just, if you're going to be, here's a bad steward. A bad steward is somebody that has a responsibility and does nothing with it. Or somebody who has a responsibility and claims that they're the boss. Look, if you're the steward, you're not the boss. Right? So, You don't want to do nothing with it, and you don't want to lift yourself up as the greatest conceivable being. What you want to do instead is steward God's varied grace that he's given us in the service of others. It says in verse 11, "...whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ." Do you see that? In everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus talked about this. He said, when you pray, you pray to God. You don't, you don't pray to be seen by people as if your prayer is so great and you want to look good. He says, when you fast, take a shower. Anoint, well, they didn't have showers. But he said, anoint your head so that you're fasting to God. You're not fasting to be seen by people. When you... What's the other one? Give. Do it secretly. He says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Our culture says, make a huge cardboard or poster board paycheck or big check out of it so that everyone can see exactly the number you gave. That's the exact opposite of what God says to do here. He says, through His Son, that we are to give to the poor secretly. Romans 16, 27 says, to God be glory forevermore. Ephesians 3.21, to God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.11, righteousness comes through Jesus to the glory and praise of God. First, Th- First Thessalonians 2:4, we speak not to please people, but God who tests our hearts. So let's live for God in 2017. And, and if you want to live for God in 2017, it, it, it's not complicated. It's you love God and you love people. I mean, that's, that's really the summary statement for Christianity, isn't it? That we would live lives that love God and that love people. And if you do that, especially when people don't deserve it, then you will make God look glorious. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize that you are the almighty, the king of the universe, the creator, sustainer, the one who is holy, holy, holy the one who is the forgiving father and the merciful one who takes back the prodigal son. We ask that you would help us to come to you, help us to lift you up in our lives. And if there are are life behaviors and habits that we need to stop, we ask for your strength to help us to stop that. If there are some areas where we need to change, where we need to add in new things, that you would give us the strength to do that, and that whatever we do, whatever we achieve, that it would be to your glory. We ask for your help in that today, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thanks for taking some time out of your schedule to listen in to this episode today. I hope it challenged you. It certainly did challenge me, and I really want to get better at this, to have this perspective in mind on a regular basis, not just once in a while Please share this episode if you think it's of interest. Don't forget to stop by and review Restitudio on iTunes if you haven't already. It really helps to spread the word about this podcast and stop by restitudio.org if you'd like to check out any old episodes as well as articles and my new ebook as well, which you can get if you subscribe to the email list. Which basically would just send you emails when new content is added, whether podcast or otherwise. So stop on by restitudio.org and remember the truth has nothing to fear.